So uh, this morning I want to follow up some from the uh, talk last week on equanimity. And I want to talk really uh, about equanimity in action. Another way to talk about that would be to talk about action without attachment. And to explore, and I think really explore uh, together uh, what that means. And explore that as an expression of how to take these qualities of mindfulness and wisdom and sensitivity and compassion and bring those more and more into our daily action. So another title I thought about for the talk was uh, the title uh, that was a favorite expression of a friend of mine. Uh, The phrase is, devotedly do. And uh, this was a phrase of a friend named Maylee Scott, that some, whom some of you may know. She died about two years ago. And we worked together quite a bit uh, in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Uh, she uh, was a Zen teacher, had received uh, Zen transmission within the uh, lineage of Suzuki Roshi. And in the last few years, lived in Berkeley for many years and then moved up to uh, Arcata in uh, Humboldt County. And she constantly uh, was acting. Uh, She was a social worker for many years. And then uh, as she retired, she she died young, I would say, at at, uh, 66. And she was really, uh, the word that just came to my mind is a word I don't use much, indefatigable. I think I pronounced it right, or indefatigable or something like that. Anyway, you know, it's, it's this quality of keeping on acting. So she was very active with the uh, questioning of the use of nuclear weapons at Livermore, and she worked in prisons. Uh, she taught meditation in prisons. And she was really, for many of us, was a source of uh, tremendous energy. She was constantly uh, acting in many different ways that were helpful. Uh, and yet it was coming from a practice perspective, and it was really coming from the point of view of uh, acting without attachment. So I wanted to ask what that means, because it it can be uh, confusing, just as we uh, may think of equanimity and not associate that with action. So we may think that to, if we really were non-attached, we might be like a big bunch of flabby jello, you know, and just kind of not do anything. If I'm not attached, would I just kind of drift around, smile, watch little TV, you know? (laughs) What do do I do if I'm, how do I keep acting if I'm I'm not attached? And does does non-attachment really go together with action? Uh... And if I'm non-attached, why would I do anything? Why would I try to address suffering? Why would I try to uh, respond to, uh, as many of you are concerned about, respond to a possible war? Why would I? Why would I act out of uh, uh, out of non-attachment? And can I really? act in the spirit of this practice. I think it's, uh, 
that's a deep question, and then I, I want to really explore the meaning of that. And in, in, so, uh, in making such an exploration, I want to invite all of us to, to ask ourselves, how do we act? You know, most of us, I think all of us, act in the world through our work, through our relationships. What's the basis for our action? What's our motivation? How do we connect our action with our sense of practice? Do we think that we're acting with non-attachment? What does that mean? And it's something that, I, I think it's a question that is a very uh, vital uh, an important one for all of us because in many ways we uh, together are exploring a new kind of practice that uh, none of us, as far as I know, are monks or nuns. And yet we, in many ways, uh, question the kind of distinction that one finds in Asia, where there was a very firm distinction between monks or nuns on the one hand and lay people on the other. And by and large, the real spiritual action was with the monks and nuns. And in many uh, South Asian countries, the lay people uh, are primarily supporting the monks and nuns. And so I think for ourselves, we're looking for something that's probably in between, Many of us really aspire towards a deep spiritual practice, and yet we do so within lives that are full of action. And a lot of those kinds of action come with kinds of relationships that monks and nuns avoided, like intimate relationships, families, uh, working for money. And so it's, I think it's a very powerful question for our time to ask, how do we understand uh, the guidelines for our own action? Does non-attachment make sense? What's the difference between attachment and commitment? And so, um, I think this is a question that we together will be asking and exploring for a long time. So I'm not going to resolve it this morning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to uh, open it up and uh, invite you in, as it were, to, uh, to look more carefully at it. But I will try to say some things which uh, seem to me to be some of the guidelines for what uh, action without attachment means. Uh, And so I really want to uh, talk about a few qualities of action without attachment. Uh, first of all, I want to I say two things about what action without attachment is not. First of all, it's not inaction. That I think that we are actually uh, always acting. We're always uh, moving in the world, and it's really impossible to avoid action. There, there's a famous line in the Bhagavad Gita which says that everything is always moving, everything is always acting. You cannot really stop your action. 
that we're always acting in our speech, in our, uh, in our movements, in our relationships, that there's something about action which is uh, there for all of us. And in fact, the, some of you know the, uh, the Pali word for action is the same word uh, as karma. Karma literally means action, or kama in, in Pali. And in a way, we are always acting, we're always engaged in relationships, uh, whatever we do. Whether we just look at someone, we're acting in some ways. And so I think it's not so much a question of uh, do we act or do we not act, but more how do we act. And the other, the other quality of what action without attachment is not is I don't believe that it means a lack of commitment, that attachment and commitment are not really the same thing. And we can actually think of the example of the Buddha or think of even of meditation practice, that when we, when we do meditation practice, we need commitment. We need, to, uh, we need to keep on with our activity. We need to keep practicing. And that uh, commitment and a sense of continuity and even clear intention uh, are not the same thing as attachment. And in fact, uh, in the Buddhist teachings, attachment is really the product of, of grasping, which is, uh, in Buddhist language, is a technical term, which refers to the quality of uh, reaching out or actually also pushing away uh, some quality of experience. That in the, uh, in the analysis, we are always in our experience continually having experiences of liking and disliking, of finding parts of our experience pleasant and other parts unpleasant. And there are very strong tendencies that we have to grab hold of what we think is pleasant and to push away what we think is unpleasant. And the analysis is that we have first the uh, contact with experience. We have the sense of pleasant and unpleasant. Then we have some sense of desire or aversion in the mind. And then we either grab hold or push away. And we're doing that all the time with experience. You know, many of you in driving here may have had some experiences of unpleasant or pleasant experiences uh, driving. You may have had other drivers who were not courteous. A sense of, oh, you know, an unpleasant sense. Oh, I was cut off. You know, and then you may have a sense of aversion, of pushing away of that driver or judgment. Dangerous driver, you know, or something like that. So the, the, the sense is that we're always having these uh, opportunities to either uh, to do something with our tendencies to grab or push away. And in our meditation practice, we watch in our minds, we watch all these tendencies. We watch uh, experiences come up like the experiences in our bodies. And we have a chance either to push it away or to to actually be present with it and see what it's about. And so we, the the quality that we are questioning is the quality of grasping or or compulsively pushing away. And in, in that in the understanding of our minds, there's a sense that that grasping and pushing away is something that's compulsive. It's not something that we do out of clarity and wisdom. And so it's also 
I think, different from saying to ourselves, no, this is not wise for me to follow, this course of action, or it's not, you know, uh, it's not wise for me to eat this or to be with this person or whatever. That, uh, that's not necessarily the same quality as grasping or uh, compulsively being aversive. And so in that sense, it's pointed out that we are often uh, grasping after just a few kinds of experiences, that we grasp after different kinds of sense experiences, or we push them away, we grasp after uh, pleasant or comfortable experiences, and we push away uncomfortable or unpleasant experiences. We also grasp after uh, ideas and views. We like certain ideas. We don't like other ideas. We think that certain ideas are great. Uh, we, like, we think that certain views are great. We think that certain opinions are great. And we may grasp onto opinions, and we discover that a great deal of our uh, communication whether interpersonally or in the systems of media, is um, exchanging views to which we're attached. This is, this is what a great deal of the mass media is about, learning about views that people are attached to. And, and we, so when we, we watch in our experience, we watch uh, how we do that with, with views and ideas. We also can do that with... Uh, just the way things are with outcomes, which with uh, uh, we can have an agenda about what should happen or what should not happen, and we can be attached to that. And we can lastly also be very attached to our, our sense of self, our self-image. In fact, many of our uh, many of our views or ideas we get attached to because we're attached to them because we think this is who I am. You know, I am a person. Uh, who has this or that idea. And we were in the, uh, the period bef- uh, earlier this morning when we renewed precepts, we were talking about, uh, really about attachment to views, either pro or con, about a possible war, and how it's really important to explore whether we do have attachment to those views. It doesn't mean that we should drop the views, but it's very important to see, oh, I attach to this view. I am against Mr. Bush. You know, and you know, if if Mr. Bush would retire tomorrow, I would feel a vacuum because it's an important part of me to be against him. You know, or it might be the other way around. You know, I'm I'm for Mr. Bush, or I'm for a I'm for a war, or whatever. And uh, so, the invitation is to really explore the nature of our attachments, and yet it's a different. Uh, aspect to actually have commitment and have clear intention that we can, with commitment, look to uproot attachment, basically. That they're not the same thing. Because, but again, we can have attachment or grasping after our meditation practice. So it's tricky, right? It's tricky, but we, the, the, the main point is that we can be committed in a relationship, in our spiritual practice, in our um, compassion, without it being attachment. So what does, um, what does action without attachment look like? I want to name a few qualities of, of that kind of action. 
in the Buddhist text, right action is one of the um, eight factors in the Eightfold Path. And it's usually talked about right action. And this, was, uh, this is especially right action for monks. It was primarily talked about in terms of following the precepts. And the precepts are those precepts of refraining from harming, refrain, refraining from stealing, refraining from uh, sex, what's called sexual misconduct, refraining from unwise speech, and refraining from uh, the use of intoxicants which cloud the mind. And we could think of the <coughs> grounding in the precepts as the starting point for action without attachment, that when we follow those ethical precepts, as it were, we, we in a gross way, avoid some of the worst attachments. <laughs> you know, that we agree that when someone does something bad to us, we're not just going to lash out and harm that person. That we are not, that we are going to, we're going to be very careful about taking that which is not given. In a way, we, I think we, when we work with the precepts, we are setting a ground for that notion of action without attachment. And so I think that it's, we have to think of the ethical precepts as a real starting point for our action in the world, for bringing our practice into our, our, our action. But I think it goes a lot further. And in, uh, in many ways, these qualities of action without attachment are not always talked so much about in the, in the classical text, in the, in the teachings of the Buddha. Again, because he was primarily addressing those teachings for monks or nuns. And even, I find, um, even in terms of what I want to call a second uh, quality of, uh, of action without attachment, is that we cultivate uh, that, that, that quality of what I'm calling mindfulness and action is not found so much in terms of the details of how to do it in the text. We have to really try to uh, work out what does it mean to be mindful when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm acting in the world? What does it mean to be mindful when I'm speaking? What does it mean to be mindful when I'm uh, at a meeting, when I'm at my job? That the setting up of mindfulness, I think, is fundamental to this work of action without attachment. What we do is, first of all, in, as in the formal meditation practice, we develop some ability uh, not to be uh, totally overrun by our thinking process, for, for many of us, as, as in your question. That for many of us, it's hard to be mindful because when we're at work or when we're engaged in action, there's a lot of thinking. And so in the meditation practice, we also set what we call a second foundation is we learn how to be more aware of the body. We learn how to be more aware of the what's called the feeling tone, the quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral in any moment. This is the second foundation of mindfulness that is a precursor to a lot of attachment. Right? So it's very, very crucial to start to be aware of when, when am I having experience of something, oh, I like this, or oh, I don't like this. Because that's going to be, in many cases, a, an experience which, if we're not conscious, will straight away and somewhat automatically lead to attachment or, or 
aversion that we act out. And so that quality of mindfulness is very, very fundamental to be able to track our thoughts while we're in the middle of action and our emotions, I think, is a very fundamental competence that we need to practice action without attachment. And I'm, you know, I think when I uh, talked about a year ago, we did some sessions on, um, on wise speech. And I don't know if you remember the practices we did, but I love the practice of cultivating an ability to be 50% inner and 50% outer in the midst of action. You might even try it now as you listen. Can you be attentive to your own inner stream, as it were, at the same time that you're listening? That, that, that ability to track oneself in terms of mind and emotion is something we have to practice to be able to be, to be, able to be uh, mindful during our action. Or maybe, maybe that's another way to say that is what mindfulness in action means. But to be able to explore action without attachment, we have to know what's going on. And so many of us in our culture, it's not so much personal, but in our culture, we're just out there, right? We're just externally oriented. So we're totally, you know, when we're with another person, how much are we really being mindful of ourselves? When we're engaged in a meeting, how much are we really tracking our own reactions or our own responses. And that's hard. That takes a lot of practice to do that. But I think that's the direction that we have to go to be able to make our action a form of practice. We have to be, start to be able to track it because when we track it, then we can start being aware, oh, I'm really attached here. And we can notice that. And we can notice it in the moment and maybe not be so... Uh, not be so pulled by the event. You know, because the typical conditioning would be, I get, a, you know, I get attached to something or I get aversive, and we just go down, you know, as it were, we go skipping down the lane with our attachment. <laughs> you know? And so it's really uh, important to be able to, to start uh, be having interest in looking at attachment in action. And by, again, by attachment, I also include aversion. So one example from my own experience was um, uh, a few years ago, I was, um, I was teaching at uh, graduate school, and I was chair of our faculty. And I had to meet with the president and the dean. Who, and I've sometimes talked about them, I think, when I've come here, because it, it's, it taught me a lot of dharma, <laughs> engaging with these people with authority. <laughs> You know, and this may ring some bells with you <laughs> in your own work, but I would, I would be um, talking with them, and the president was a big, gruff, blustery man, about 6'4", with a big red face, who couldn't listen to anyone. And, I, and, and the dean was a woman who often just went along with him. And I would sometimes meet with the three of them, and I would say something, and he would just blast out something, and I wouldn't feel I was listened to. And at first, when, I, when, I, um, when that happened, I think I just sort of disappeared. You know, I just, I, I said, you know, I think internally, I just said, this guy didn't listen to me at all, you know. What, who is he? What, you know, what is this guy about, you know. 
you know, he's just, he's out of it, you know, and I, I started being judgmental and I started withdrawing and I, in a, in a way, uh, I got uh, just caught in my aversion, you know, and it became pretty solid. And I just, and, I, and it was pretty hard for me to act with any wisdom at that point. And I started noticing that that was happening and I started to be interested in tracking the exact process whereby something would happen and I would go into that kind of judgmental, paralyzed withdrawal. Do you know that? Anyone else experienced that? <laughs> you know? And I would, I would start tracking the experience so I could actually, f- and I, I was interested in it. I would, you know, and I would, some, I was, I would go to those meetings and I would, I think I, I mentioned this sometime before, I would, I would do walking meditation on the way to the meetings. I would get all ready and I would just be, you know, I would be, like most interested in learning, which is, I think, another way to uh, talk about how to transform our sense of action. Can we take as the basic context for our, for our action the intention to learn? And I'll get to, actually, I'll get to that in, in a moment, but I think I really was interested in learning. I wanted to not get totally smashed around, you know, but I, but I, I, I was interested in learning, and so I was trying to see the moment at which he would not listen to me. You know, I would say something that I thought was important. He would immediately follow by saying something on totally another subject, right? As if my words had gone out the window. And I would sort of, hmm. And I, and I would feel some tendency to sort of collapse. I would feel, oh, you know, not, not being seen, not being heard, not being listened to. And I would notice that internally and I would then try to be aware of it. I would say, tendency to collapse. <laughs> you know? And I would note, I would try to feel what it was like in the moment while I was in the middle of action. And then I would try to develop a uh, repertoire of action in which I would not collapse, in which I would say something like, I'm not sure you heard that point I made, but that's very important to me, and I'd like to continue to bring it up. Or, you know, something non-aggressive, non-attacking, but some way of working with that tendency to collapse. And, but it required a lot of attention to tracking internally and watching where there was that attachment or aversion. And it, could be, it could be the other way around. It could be uh, watching where I suddenly get very attached to a certain outcome in a meeting, right? Do you know what happens when you get really attached to an outcome in a, in a meeting or in an interaction? Well, the attachment more or less takes over in a similar way, right? It takes over in a way that's analogous to that sense of collapse I was describing. We just are, got to have it, you know. It's that quality, you know, when we're at a meeting and you can see sometimes see when there's a slight pause, three people jump for the opportunity to speak, right? That's usually a sign of attachment. <laughs> and, and so we have to be able to track those uh, internal qualities if we're going to do this work. And that's not easy. It, de- it depends on a, a significant degree of mindfulness. But we have to somehow be able to uh, develop that and begin to track uh, and inquire and somehow be able to act more and more with a sense of mindfulness. I know that uh, uh, John Travis is my main mentor he gives me instructions for my talks. He says, do your homework, but when you're giving a talk, 
keep awareness of your body and your process and, and don't even think about what you're going to say. And just let it self-organize. You know, it's, it's, it's the quality of, um, which I do more or less, <laughs> but it's a quality of um, really not getting caught in the external action, in, in, in being a speaker, keeping some internal attention. I love the 50-50 guideline, which, which I actually got from John. That sense of 50% external, 50% internal. Another focus that's often there, which, which I alluded to, is the, quality, is the quality of action without attachment of doing one's action and, as it were, letting the chips fall where they may, of not being attached to the outcome of one's action. That's pretty hard, right? But that is one of the places really to look carefully. And it's something that's for thousands of years been one of the uh, hallmarks of uh, spiritually guided action. You know, again, in the Gita, there are these wonderful passages where they talk about action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. And I, I wanted to read one of those uh, passages uh, that, that gives that in this very ancient uh, sense, which was actually written uh, just, it was actually written a few hundred years after the Buddha, so I think it may have well be influenced by Buddhist tradition. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work. The same in success and misfortune, this evenness, this is discipline. He of disciplined mind in this world cast off both good and evil deeds. Therefore, train yourself in discipline. Discipline is true skill in works or true skill in actions. The same in success and misfortune, this evenness, that is discipline. And that's a hard one, really, to imagine. How can, how can I give up my reliance on the outcome? And again, is that contrary to a sense of commitment? It's really about somehow, I think, going in a certain direction and watching, again, where one is attached to the outcome. And a lot of it's about really looking and examining how much power do I actually have? How much do I overestimate my sense of being able to control things? Because I think the direction here is towards a kind of action that doesn't think that it's so much in control and that can do what needs to be done and let things fall where they may. Um, T.S. Eliot said this. T.S. Eliot said, Ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying. The rest is not my business. It's not our business. And I think personally I learned a lot about this when I was um, uh, teaching. Um, I was teaching at the University of Kentucky. I don't know if I told this story, but I was... Uh, like a young teacher, and I was teaching an evening class on ethics. And the bulk of my class were football players. And I don't know if you know what football players are like in the evenings after six hours of practice. (laughs) But they are, well, they've practiced for four, five, six hours and just had a big meal. And they're kind of friendly, 
you know, and I, I think I taught about a quarter of the University of Kentucky football team in my, in my time there. But they, they um, weren't that interested in the subject matter. It didn't seem to me. And I, I was working with this situation, and I got really, really frustrated. And I wanted, you know, I wanted them to pay attention. I got irritated when they would just sort of joke around and, you know, I'd be trying to say something, and you could imagine they would just, they just crack some joke with each, with each other, and um, <laughs> it was an it was an interesting experience, you know, to have this you know strong, earnest young teacher. Let's let's explore ethics and have people who were just sort of, they really wanted to take a nap, <laughs> and there I was, and what was I going? I, I suffered. I was I was really attached to the outcome. And about midway through that, that experience, it took me like weeks of suffering to kind of say, okay, I'm just going to do my best. I have no idea what's happening here. I've agreed to teach this. I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know whether they're learning anything or not, or anyone's learning anything, but I'm going to just do my best and not worry about what happens. And I was, um, I was much happier. <laughs> I think they were probably more, more happy. And um, sometime uh, at the end of the semester, a bunch of them t- came up to me and told me they had learned a lot. And in fact, one of them came like six months later and told me that it was one of the most important learning experiences. And it, you know, it must have been something got in in between jokes or something. <laughs> but it was, it was really revealing for me because it really gave me a sense of, of this quality of acting without attachment and acting without being so preoccupied by the outcome. And I think it's really, uh, it's really a model that, we, um, that we're invited, invited to explore. That, that um, there's something about our attachment to outcomes which colors the actions and can even distort the actions. And it's much more, it's much more a question of what is our motivation when we act. I think that's really what that, that issue addresses. What's our motivation? Are we motivated by certain outcomes? Are we motivated by a sense of service? Are we motivated by uh, compassion? Are we motivated by acting and, and learning? And learning, and because there's a certain quality when we don't have so much attachment to outcomes, there's a way in which our action starts to move into other territories. It becomes a little lighter even if we're dealing with very intense things. It can be a little lighter. It can be uh, more relaxed. It can, in a way, be more playful. You know, that um, if I could go to those meetings uh, without thinking that I ever was going to have this president listen to me, I'm going to be a little more playful, right? I'm gonna, and, I'm, and I actually found I could actually be far more effective at my outcomes when I wasn't attached to my outcomes. It's interesting, right? It's interesting how that, how that happens. There's a way in which, and this is another quality, when we act without attachment, we go towards those qualities of play. We, we go towards a quality of acting um, more out of our presence, more out of our awareness, more out of our being, you might say. You might say our doing comes out of our being, rather than having our doing dominate our being. Do you know what I mean? Our, our, our doing comes more out of our 
our presence. Um, Chuang Tzu, the uh, Taoist sage, in fact, he talked about a whole different kind of action, which was without attachment, which, which he called Wu Wei, which is usually translated as non-action, which was distinct both from action on the one hand and inaction on the other. That there is a quality of acting in the midst of uh, being very still. So Chuang Tzu loving this uh, combination of the opposites, this notion of, of a doing which comes out of stillness, <coughs> a doing which comes out of being very present and still. And this is, this is, what, uh, this is what Chuang Tzu said. The non-action of the wise person is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything. The sage is quiet because he or she is not moved, not because he or she wills to be quiet. This is perfect Tao. Wise people find here their resting place. Resting, they are empty. Emptiness, stillness, tranquility, silence, and non-action are the root of all things. And so I think it's very crucial to cultivate that sense of non-doing or presence in the midst of our action, to have have that quality of stillness be more present there. And I think for many of us that means having periods in which we're not dominated by doing, in which we're not dominated by thinking, taking a Sabbath, having periods of meditation, having periods of rest, having periods in which we are not doing in the usual sense can give us a sense of of that kind of stillness. When we are acting in that way, I think we start moving towards a kind of sacred form of action. We are sort of unified together. Do you know that kind of action where all the parts of ourselves are unified, where our minds and our bodies, and we're totally concentrated on the action? I think we've all experienced this. In sports, it's called being in the zone, right? Where there's total focus. Uh, I had a, let's see, I had something from uh, a quotation about this from uh, the, the tennis player Billie Jean King. She talked about this quality of being in the zone where one's action is so unified. She said it's a perfect combination. This was in the context of tennis. It's a perfect combination of violent action taking place in an atmosphere of total tranquility. <laughs> when it happens, I want to stop the match and grab the microphone and shout, that's what it's all about. <laughs> Because it is. It's not the big prize I'm going to win at the end of the match or anything else. It's just having done something that's totally pure and having experienced the perfect emotion. And I'm, I'm, I'm always sad that I can't communicate that feeling right at the moment it's happening. I can only hope people realize what's going on. And do you know, do you know that sense of... Um, I, I can remember when I first experienced that. I think I was in college and I was, I was writing a paper or something and I totally got into the paper and I had no sense of time for like three or four hours. And I came out of that and I said, wow, I've never experienced that before. I've been going to school for a long time. <laughs> Maybe I had as a kid, but, but there was something about that total immersion in the, in the action, which is, which is very beautiful. That sense of uh, oneness with action, a sense of flow. And I think as we do that more, we can 
we really start to go into what's mysterious, that our action coming out of that deep stillness can, um, can touch what's really um, mysterious, sacred, can really have a way of acting on others that um, doesn't come so much from our conscious intentions, doesn't have much to do with our outcomes. And there's a quality of our, of our action which we can move towards, which is like that, which is, has great silence and presence in action without attachment to the outcomes. And I wanted to read um, a story that, that illustrates an example of this, I think, in a very difficult circumstance. This kind of action that just... Kind of, actually, this was an example of action that came out of love in a very tense situation. And I, wanted, and I think it, it shows something about the, the mystery. This is a story uh, about a woman named uh, Karen Ridd, who is a Canadian woman, who in 1989 was working with a group called Peace Brigades International uh, in Guatemala. And Peace, what Peace Brigades International does, there are people who stay with... Uh, worked mostly in Central America. There are people who stay with people who are in danger. And they say by the presence of, as it were, privileged people of North American or European background, these people will be rendered safer. So Karen Ridd was one of those persons. She was from Canada. And she was with a group of people who were suddenly arrested by the Guatemalan military. Three of the five were Spanish nationals, and they were promptly deported from Guatemala, leaving Karen, who was Canadian, and her friend Marcela Rodriguez, who was from Colombia, to face whatever was coming. Fortunately, Karen had time to call the Canadian Council and alert another uh, volunteer who happened to call at the right moment. This was some comfort, as was the civility at first of the soldiers. But no one from the team had had to face arrest before. And from another room, Marcelo heard the soldiers describing them as terrorists from the Episcopal Church. It's funny, but of course not so funny. Their spirits did not improve when the two women, along with other detainees, were loaded onto a truck taken to an army barracks blindfolded and subjected to five hours interrogation about their alleged connection with the guerrilla group, while sounds of torture and the sobbing of victims came from nearby rooms. Karen knew that the uh, peace brigades would quickly alert their worldwide network about the arrest, but she also knew that time was short. There was no telling what would happen in that barracks if someone didn't get them out before nightfall. Peace Brigades had, in fact, activated its worldwide network, and before long, hundreds of people were sending faxes to the Canadian and Colombian embassies demanding the the immediate release of Karen and Marcella. All this got no response at all from the Colombian embassy, but Canada brought official pressure on the Guatemalan government, no doubt hinting that their extensive trade relations with Guatemala could be compromised if Karen was not released immediately. Whatever it was got through to whomever was in charge. Karen found herself walking across the barracks ground towards a waiting embassy official a few hours later, a free woman. But when the soldiers removed her blindfold inside the barracks, she had caught a glimpse of Marcella, face to the wall, what she later called a perfect image of dehumanization. Glad as Karen was to be alive, something tagged at her. Feeling terrible, She made some excuses to the exasperated Canadian embassy official who had come all the way 
from, uh, come, come all the way from Guatemala City to get her, turned and walked back into the barracks, not knowing what would happen to her in there, but knowing it could not be worse than walking out on a friend. The soldiers were startled and almost as exasperated. They handcuffed her again. In the next room, a soldier banged Marcella's head into the wall and said that some white bitch was stupid enough to walk back in there, and now you're going to see the treatment a terrorist deserves. No more Mr. Nice Guy, but Karen's gesture was having a strange effect on the men. Her gesture was having a strange effect on the men. They talked to Karen despite themselves, and she tried to explain why she had returned. You know what it's like to be separated from a compañero. That got to them. They released Karen and Marcella, and the two women walked out together, under the stars, hand in hand. So I think that was a quality of that action that came from somewhere deeper, right? That came, that is, uh, that is really, I think, what's pointed to by this practice, pointed to by this notion of action with a, without attachment, that there's, there, there's, there's a way that as we act more, as we work more with our attachments, as we're mindful, as we have that, that grounding in ethics, we move towards that sort of spontaneous, unified action that comes from the deepest part of our place. I think that's where this notion of action without attachment points to. I know that we touch that each of us at certain times in our life. But this, the, the, uh, the, the, the constant practice of working with the attachments, of developing the internal mindfulness goes in that direction. So I think those qualities of that wholehearted, whole-bodied, unified action that touches the mysterious happens more and more in our, in our lives. And that we, I think we have to really share with and inspire each other to act more and more in that, in that way and find out how to uh, liberate that, uh, that energy of action in us. So, thank you. It's like, yeah, it'd be interesting. What gives him the, as it were, the internal compass to withstand pressures of all kinds and, and keep his own focus? Yeah, yeah, it's that, I, th- I, think we, I think we find it in different ways. We, some of us may, may know that sense of stillness in action. You may know it, uh, some people may know it from athletics or from dance or from music or something like that because I think the, that, that quality is really necessary. Uh, and we may then strengthen it in our meditation practice and, and learn about that deep stillness. And some of us, it may be the opposite way. We may first really find that when we meditate and then fi- try to find ways to bring it outward. Thanks, it's a great question. And um, not knowing her, I probably can't give a full answer. I, I think I was... It gets at that question of what's the difference between attachment and commitment. It really, it really gets at that question, which is a hard one. Um, she obviously wasn't attached to her safety, right? So it's a question of what was the nature of the relationship, and was that about attachment, or was that about 
is that different from love or commitment? Um, I w- in presenting it, I was interpreting that to be different from some kind of uh, uh, grasping quality of the relationship. I don't know really, um, but that's how I was. That's why I presented it. I think that it was. Um, it seemed to me to be something about a an acting out of a sense of connection. Uh, that certainly goes beyond our usual sense of attachment, certainly to our own well-being. Um, but the language is tricky, isn't it? Because we, we sometimes use attached in a, uh, in a more neutral way. I know there's even a branch of psychology called attachment theory in which attachment is good, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if others would like to join in there, but that was, that was, that's how I would respond. That, 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 it certainly, she was certainly not attached to a narrow sense of self. She was going into danger. And uh, your question would be, was she attached to her friend in some way? And I know for a fact, I know that she actually has been very active in some ways responding to the larger situation since she came back. She, she's been a trainer uh, and uh, quite active. So in some ways, it's a question of, uh, I mean, there, there are a few issues there. I mean, the fact that she left, it was a question of, was there something possible, was she going to go back and say, we won't leave until everyone else leaves here? That sounds less likely. It's a question of where can one be effective? How can I act most skillfully? Um, but it's very, it's very tricky because it's partly that we don't, I don't, we, we, ha, we don't have, I don't know her. You know, and I, I think I was, uh, I was interpreting this as a kind of action that certainly didn't have our normal sense of attachment. You know, is it when, when a mother is willing to risk her life to save a child, is that attachment? It doesn't seem like attachment in the usual sense of, Buddhist practice. It's a hard one, and I don't want to totally focus on this. We could probably think about it for a long time, but it's, it's because uh, I think what struck me was also the same thing that, stru- that struck you, that it was uh, a story. She, d- she wasn't really attached to the outcome. If anything, she was attached to her friend. If that's, you know, I think that's, you know, but uh, uh, she wasn't attached to the outcome. And I, for me, it also struck someone who didn't seem attached. She just wanted to be there. She wasn't sure at all what was going to happen. And in fact, the mysterious occurred in that context. When she did not have attached, she didn't go there and go down on her knees and beg them for her friend's life, you know. She went there and she was just wanted to be present there. And something very powerful happened that, that often happens in these sort of circumstances where a group of people who are oppressive their hearts get melted, you know, by an action like this, you know, and there are countless examples from other um, situations, you know, from the civil rights movement or whatever, of people who just have these uh, shifts that occur because of a constant action that is, uh, ha- doesn't have the usual qualities of attachments. And uh, maybe we can leave that as, as a koan, your, your question about... Uh, because it's really, to me, it's really a question of how can we really be deeply connected? And is that attachment? You know, if I'm deeply connected to another person, 
you might say, what are the dangers of that being attachment? Because the same thing would be true of uh, one's connection to a family or to a partner, right? That that, That there could be a very deep sense of connection. One could ask the question, do you give more of your good energy for your partner and your family than the rest of the world? Is that attachment? You know? And I think it's it's a tricky it's a tricky set of issues, right? That's did everyone hear? No, it's very helpful. It's kind of a nice way to um, to summarize, because it really draws back the focus to um, to our own practice and to that question of really tracking the aversion or attachment in the moment. And uh, I mean, I was thinking that that actually is. For me, where I would probably go with actually with the, the difficult question you asked, like what was in that person's heart in the moment? Because we we just hear the external story, but the real question is what was there in the moment? Was there what was what was the quality of the heart there? And we we don't really know from the story. But in t- in terms of what you're saying, it's it's uh, I think our real practice is to continue continue to continually. Um, see what's there, examine those attachments and aversion, and learn how to let them go so we can create that space you're talking about. Because without that space, uh, not much happens. Like you say, it's just reaction. It's just ping-pong balls back and forth. And it's really, um, I think you're, you also point out how we can have a view or a stance or a position that kind of looks good. But if we're reactive, we're not creating that open space. And that, the, that I think the deeper meaning of action without attachment is to create that open space. And I think, I think the, the, uh, the story I told about Karen Ridd, I think my motivation there was to, uh, to, to suggest that was the place where the open space was created and something powerful and mysterious can happen that's beyond our usual can. And, and, that, and that when we act like that, we can feel like we're much more um, servants of, of our deepest values. You know, in Christian language, you would say a servant of God. Uh, and that when we do that, uh, our action becomes more like service and even play and worship than that wrestling match that we, that we often experience. And so I think the, to, to summarize, the value, I think, of this practice is that it gives us some very concrete tools to move in that direction. It gives us these tools of mindfulness, it gives us the precepts, and it gives us ways that we can uh, set up, I think, that 50-50 inner and outer uh, ratio that, that we can really work on this uh, every day. And that's what is particularly a gift of this tradition, that, that, that we, don't, we don't just get inspired by stories or hear this, but we can actually practice. And that's really what's to me, is, is most important about this. Thank you, and th- thanks for that, for that comment. And So let's just close in, in a minute or so. So inviting to be present. What's been most important from this morning? 
an insight or an intention that may have come up in the sitting or in the talk or discussion or maybe even driving here or walking here. And give that some space. Is there an intention which comes out of the morning for you? And so we dedicate the merit of this time together, the fruits, the learning, the insights, the good intentions, the energy. We we vow to share this with all beings, sharing the work this morning with all beings. Knowing that we are just like all others, we want this happiness, this deep happiness, this awakening and love. And so we dedicate this morning for to the awakening of all, the freedom, the love of all beings. May all beings come to that quality of action that comes out of a deep freedom comes out of a deep stillness and connection to the mystery. Thanks for your attention and let me know what you find. <laughs> it's, this is kind of ongoing homework, isn't it? Thank you.